Well, we are now in our sixth week in the book of James. And today is a very big day in our journey through this letter because today is the day that we are looking at a passage that, at least on the surface, seems to contradict some other passages in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, a lot of people who are skeptical about the Bible's trustworthiness, about the Bible's coherence, uh, like to point to this passage as evidence that the Bible can't really be trusted. Uh, because the Apostle Paul seems to say one thing, and James seems to be saying the opposite. And this is a big deal, not only because there appears to be a contradiction in Scripture, but because what Paul and James are talking about isn't just something like how many people were fighting in a battle or the exact order of a series of events, but they're talking about salvation, right? Um, they're talking about um, our standing before God for eternity. And James seems to be saying that we're saved by faith plus what we do. And Paul seems to be saying that we're saved by faith alone. And so this passage is something that we need to consider very carefully. Uh, not only because we want to understand our own salvation and how it works, but because we also should have an answer ready for when people say to us, uh, don't, don't Paul and James contradict each other? Isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? We want to have something to say to them. So, let's take a look at this passage. Uh, this is picking up right where we left off last week, chapter 2, verse 14. Um, chapter 2, verse 14. But before I read it, let's say a quick prayer. Ask God to guide us. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for giving us minds to be able to, to read it and study it. And God, we just ask for your illumination we pray that you would give us insight into what we read, that you would help us to take away from it exactly what your Holy Spirit intends uh, for us to see. Uh, we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear what it is you want to say and uh, hearts to receive it. And uh, I pray that you would help us to have patience as we work our way through kind of a difficult passage, Lord. Uh, we thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, so imagine this scenario in your head. Let's say you are a young parent living in a country that's at war. And one night, while you're sleeping, there is an attack, and a bomb hits your house. And in the explosion, your home is destroyed, and your spouse is killed. Uh, so now you're homeless, you're grieving, and at the same time, you're trying to care and provide for your children. You have no job, you have no money, you're hungry, you're dirty, and you're tired. And all you have is the clothes on your back, and even those are falling apart. And you're curled up in some alleyway with your kids, praying to God for help. And you finish your prayer, and when you look up, you see that there's an old friend of yours standing right in front of you. Someone who you know is very wealthy, and uh, who has a large place of refuge outside of the town. And so you see this old friend, and your hope rises. Uh, you think, oh, my prayers have been answered. And you give him a big hug, and you start pouring out your heart to him, and you're telling him about everything that's happened. And your friend looks at you with a compassionate face and says, I am so sorry, so sorry to hear that. That's terrible. And he puts his hand on your shoulder, and he looks in your eyes, and he says, I really hope you find shelter and food. And then he walks away. Now, on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest, how much help was your old friend in saving you from your trial? If you say anything above one, I think you're being very generous. Your old friend was useless when it came to helping you. He didn't do anything. And of course, that's basically the example that James gives us at the beginning of this passage. And what he says is that as useless as your friend was in that situation to save you, so also faith without deeds is just as useless to save a person. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? James' answer to that question is the illustration that he gives. Can such a faith save him? A faith without deeds? No. It can't. Just as someone saying, be warm and well-fed, but not doing anything to actually house and feed a person can't save that person, so also your faith, if it is without deeds, cannot save you. It's useless. So James is really making a very strong statement here about faith without deeds. Now, in verse 18, he anticipates an objection that some people might have to what he's saying. He says, well, some people will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And that's kind of like saying, well, you know, we all have different gifts in the body of Christ. So some people have the gift of believing stuff. And then some people have the gift of doing the work, you know, doing all the stuff to help people. And James tries to help us to see the absurdity of this kind of thinking with what I think is just a fantastic example. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is a great example of sarcasm in the Bible. The Bible actually has a lot of sarcasm. Um, <laughs> you believe that there is one God? Excellent. Good for you. Well done. You have something in common with demons. Great. And what James does here is he implies two things about our salvation. 
The first is that our salvation is not just about what we know. It's not just about what we know. It's not just about looking at a list of doctrines and saying, yep, those things are true. There's one God, check. That God reveals himself in three persons, check. Jesus is the incarnation of God, check. It's not enough. Doctrine does matter. It is important because doctrine is what we believe about God. But doctrine by itself is not enough because demons know doctrine. Demons probably know the, better, the Bible better than, than we do. Um, in fact, in the Gospels, the demons are portrayed as knowing Jesus as Lord before pretty much anybody else. So knowing certain facts about God is not enough to save us. The second thing about our salvation that this comparison to demons implies is that being afraid of judgment isn't enough to save us. Uh, James says that the demons think of God and they shudder, which means they're struck with extreme fear. And, and the reason for that is probably because they know that judgment awaits them. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus confronts two demon-possessed men, and they say, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So even though the demons know that judgment awaits them, and even though they shudder at the thought of that, that's not enough to bring them to salvation. And notice, they even declare there, Jesus is the Son of God, right? So it's not just enough to know things or to shudder in fear of God's judgment. Neither of those things in itself is enough for salvation. See, what demons lack is not intellectual knowledge about God, or even, in some sense, the fear of God. What demons lack is love for God. And that makes all the difference. Uh, but we'll talk about that more later. Next, James gives us two examples from Scripture to support this point that faith without deeds is useless. And the first example he gives is Abraham. And the deed that James sees as justifying Abraham is this moment when Abraham willingly sacrifices his son or... Um, he doesn't actually sacrifice his son, but he, he prepares to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the altar. Now, for anyone who is not familiar with this story, uh, let me give a little bit of background. Way back in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, uh, God calls Abraham to leave his homeland, and he promises him that he's going to build a great nation through him and his descendants. And it's, it's, through, uh, it, it's through Abraham and through his descendants that Jesus eventually, eventually comes. But when God makes this, pro this promise to Abraham, Abraham and, and his wife have a problem, which is that they're childless and they're very old, like really old, like 80s or 90s. They're, they are up there. They are way past childbearing age. And yet God promises that they will have a child. And sure enough, by a miracle of God, they do. And they name that child Isaac. So Isaac is in this amazing position where this whole promise that God has made uh, is resting on his shoulders. He's the only chance that God's promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. And yet one day, Abraham, he Abraham hears God calling him to take his son Isaac, his only son, whom he loves, and to sacrifice him as an offering to God. And even though it must have been extraordinarily difficult for Abraham to obey in that case, he did. 
He brings the son up on a mountain and he binds him and he raises the knife to slay him. But right before he follows through on that sacrifice, God tells him, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now that's a, that's a really tough story. I have to be totally honest, I don't, even, I don't really like that story. I've wrestled with that story a lot. You know, it raises questions like, why would God ask Abraham to do such a thing? Uh, wouldn't it have been more moral for Abraham to, to refuse to kill his son? I mean, killing your son, that's not a very good thing, right? Why would an all-knowing God have to ask Abraham to prove his faith, never mind in such a disturbing way? Questions like these are, are challenging. They're hard to answer. This is a difficult story. And unfortunately, we don't have time to address all those questions today. Someday, I would really like to do a whole sermon just on this story, because I think it's as difficult as, as it is. It's incredibly profound and deep. And uh, it, not only that, but it foreshadows when God will not spare his only son in a, in a remarkable way. Um, but if you're having trouble with this story right now, uh, I encourage you to keep in mind that the Lord did not allow Abraham to go through with that sacrifice. Be, be reassured by that if you're, if you're struggling with it. Um, and God actually strictly forbids child sacrifice throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even though in the surrounding nations, child sacrifice is often a part of their worship. So rest assured, the God of Scripture is not pro-child sacrifice. Okay? But the point James is making is that Abraham was considered righteous because he was willing to do this. In other words, Abraham was considered righteous because he was willing to do what the Lord asked him to do, even when it was hard to do it. And the book of Hebrews tells us, even though Genesis doesn't tell us, tell us this, but the book of Hebrews says that Abraham had so much faith that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead, even if he slayed him. Right? So... Abraham was considered righteous because he had this extraordinary faith that led him to be willing to do this thing that was very hard for him to do. And the second example that James gives is of Rahab. And uh, that makes a, it makes a very similar point. Rahab is considered righteous because of what she did. Uh, Rahab was not exactly the kind of person that Jews would be inclined to regard well. She was a Gentile. She was a prostitute. But Rahab was convinced that the Lord was with the Israelites, and that the land belonged to them. And so when the Israelite spies came through the land, uh, Rahab actually defied the king of Jericho, uh, and she hid them, and she protected them. And she really stuck her neck out for them. And because she did this, she was treated well by the Israelites when they conquered the land, and she was actually adopted into the Israelite nation. And the book of Matthew tells us that she actually became part of Jesus' lineage. She's one of her, his, his ancestors. So in both of these examples, Abraham and Rahab are considered righteous because of something that they do. And James uses them to make his point that faith without deeds is useless. And he even goes so far as to say in verse 24, you see that a person is justified uh, by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay, now if you were here at all when we went through the book of Colossians a little while ago, 
you might remember, hopefully you remember, that something that we emphasized a lot was this idea that we are saved not on account of what we do, but on account of what Christ has done for us, right? In other words, we emphasize that our eternity in heaven is secure, not because we earn it for ourselves, but because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And that's the gospel. That is the good news. The good news is that what we could not earn, God earned for us through Jesus Christ. But if that's true, how do we, how do we reconcile what James is saying here? James says, a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. But Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not only that, but both Paul and James use the same verse when talking about this subject. Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul uses it in the book of Galatians. Uh, when Paul was writing to the Galatians, uh, some people had infiltrated the Galatian church, and they were claiming that if you were going to be saved, you had to follow all the Jewish laws. And Paul responded to that very strongly, and he condemned that. And here's what he said. He said, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? In other words, are you saved because you observe the, the Jewish law, or is it because you have faith in the message about Jesus that we gave you? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, the and the implied answer is the latter thing, that it's because of they believe what they heard. And then to support his point, this is where uh, Paul quotes Genesis, he says, consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So what Paul is saying here is that Abraham was saved not because he followed the law. I mean, God hadn't even given the law at that point. The law doesn't come until Moses. Abraham was saved, as the scripture says, because he believed in what God had promised. God revealed something to him, and he, he followed that word that was given to him. He trusted it in faith, and he acted on it. And his faith was credited to him as righteousness. But when James uses the same verse, okay, um, it's part of a passage where he's claiming that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So, what is the deal here? <laughs> Do we need to get rid of James or Paul? Martin Luther, the reformer, he didn't like the book of James. He called it an, an epistle of straw. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think this is an unsolvable problem, actually. Um, I think James and Paul can be harmonized, and I actually think we don't have to do anything dishonest in order to do it, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so I'm going to provide a list of reasons for why, for why that is, and uh, hopefully it helps all of us to, to deal with this, and also to communicate it to other people who might ask. So, first reason that James and Paul are not in conflict. Paul and James don't mean quite the same thing when they talk about being justified. Now, words can have multiple shades of meaning, right? And one thing that justify can mean is to be declared righteous. 
to be declared righteous. Uh, it's, um, this is a very legal sense of the term, uh, and it's the way that Paul uses it. To be declared righteous means to be uh, declared to be in right standing, or to be, to be declared to be in right relationship. So when Paul talks about being justified by faith, he means it in this legal way. Uh, that through our faith in Jesus, faith alone, not by works, we are declared righteous before God. We are declared to be in right standing with him. Like a judge in a courtroom, God pronounces, we are justified. Okay? But when James uses the word justify, it means something a little bit different. Justify can also mean to show or prove that a statement is true. So, um, if I said, as I did last week, it's a good idea for St. Paul's uh, to try meeting in the morning instead of the afternoon, you might say, justify that statement. Right? In other words, prove to me, give me some reasons to think that that, that idea is reasonable. And when James talks about us uh, being justified, not by faith alone, but by what we do, that's the sense that he means it in. So, James doesn't mean that our deeds save us. What James means is that our deeds prove that our faith is real. Okay? They justify our faith. Claiming to believe certain things or shuddering over the idea of judgment doesn't prove that we have real faith in Christ. What proves that we have real faith is what we do. And when Paul is talking about us being justified by faith, he's not talking about what proves that our faith exists. He's talking about what actually puts us in right relationship with God. So Paul and James are using justify differently. Now, that reason on its own, I think, is actually enough to make it so that James and Paul aren't actually contradicting each other. But in case you feel like you need a little bit more reasoning, I have, I have two more uh, reasons that I want to suggest. The second one is that um, Paul and James don't contradict because they aren't using Genesis 15:6 in the same way. Um, so when Paul uses this verse, he uses it to prove that we're made right with God through faith, not through works. Right? Genesis 15:6 says Abraham was righteous. Why? Because he believed. So Paul quotes it in order to prove that it's our faith that actually saves us. But when James uses it, it's not to prove anything. Right? Listen to the way he uses it. He says, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So notice that phrase, the scripture was fulfilled. See, James is saying that when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, he was proving that what Genesis 15:6 says is true. He was proving that he did in fact believe in God um, and that he was in fact in right relationship with God. He was demonstrating that. The scripture was fulfilled. So Paul and James really aren't interpreting Genesis 15:6 differently. They're just referring to it for different reasons. Paul's using it as proof that we're saved by faith. 
And James is referring to it because he, he wants us to recognize that it was proven to be true when Abraham obeyed God. So finally, a third reason that Paul and James aren't in conflict is because they both see certain kinds of works as essential for true believers. They both see certain kinds of works as essential for true believers. Paul is often dismissive of the need for doing what you would call the works of the Jewish law. So things like, if you're male, being circumcised, uh, keeping a kosher diet, being ceremonially clean, that sort of thing. But when it comes to the kind of works that James has been emphasizing, things like caring for the poor, not, sharing, not showing favoritism, basically loving your neighbor kinds of works, Paul cares just as much as James about that stuff. I mean, after all, Paul is the one who wrote, if I have not love, I have nothing, right? So here's what I would say if you're still struggling to harmonize Paul and James. There's this one little verse from Paul's letter to the Galatians that I think helps a lot. He says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Notice, he doesn't just say the only thing that counts is faith, right? He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that suggests that any kind of faith, if you can call it that, that does not express itself through love doesn't count. It's not worthwhile. And that's the same thing that James is saying, right? So both Paul and James have the same basic understanding here, which is we are saved through faith in Christ, not through ourselves. But when we have genuine faith, that leads us to be loving That faith, if it's genuine, will have effects on our behavior. It will express itself through love, love for God and love for people. And so while Paul really wants to emphasize this glorious fact that we are saved by Jesus, not by ourselves, James wants to emphasize that when Jesus saves us, it transforms us. It changes us. If you really have faith in Jesus, it's going to change you. A couple weeks ago, I used the analogy of a doctor writing a prescription. I said, if you say you have faith in your doctor, but every time your doctor writes a prescription, you just toss it in the trash, you don't really have faith in your doctor. There's no way. That doesn't make sense. Real faith is going to lead to action. Okay. Now, if you're like me, at this point, you have a question. You think, okay, I'm saved by the grace of God. Good. It's not what I do that saves me, but what Jesus has done for me, my faith in Jesus. Okay, great. But if my faith in Jesus is genuine, it's going to affect my behavior. Okay. So here's where the question comes up. How good does my behavior have to be before I can be sure that my faith is genuine? I mean, if faith without deeds is as useless as my salvation to my salvation, as James says, it's hard not to start wondering about that, right? 
Because all of us, if we're honest, we would have to admit we have not loved God and our neighbor perfectly. Even after coming to faith, right? It's not like you come to faith and then all of a sudden you're doing that perfectly. Not even close. So is our faith genuine? Is it justified? Is it proven to be real? Well, if you're asking yourself that question and maybe feeling some anxiety, here's what I would say. There's a time for examining ourselves and asking, am I a real believer? Does my life reflect true faith? There's a place for that. But I would say we really should not stay focused on that question for very long. Because when we do, here's what happens. We start trusting in our works to save us rather than in Jesus. And one bad thing that happens when we do that is that we start doing good deeds in order to feel secure in our salvation. And that's a problem because sin isn't just doing the wrong things. Sin is doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And when we do good things mainly because we're trying to prove to ourselves that we're saved, we're not really loving. If you help your neighbor mainly because you're afraid that if you don't, you're going to go to hell, you're really serving yourself more than you're serving your neighbor. And that's not really love. Paul says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And James agrees. So we shouldn't be doing good things in order to prove to ourselves that we're actually saved. We should be doing good things because we love God and because we love our neighbors and because we're thankful that Jesus has already saved us. See, what we really need to do is to take our fo the focus off of ourselves and put it on Jesus. If we start putting our confidence and our hope in what we do, that's not going to lead to anywhere good. It will either lead to despair, because there's no way that we can measure up to God's standards, or it will lead to pride, like, ha, 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 you know, I'm, I'm in the right, I'm doing everything right, why aren't you doing better? But what we need to do is set our eyes and our hope and our trust fully on Jesus, and specifically on what Jesus did when he paid the price on the cross for our sins. That is where our hope needs to be. Not just a part of our hope, but all of it. And when we set our hope and our confidence and our focus on him and what he has done, that is what transforms us. That's what changes us. And when we do that, we will find ourselves loving our neighbors, not because we're trying to earn our right standing with God or prove to ourselves that we're in right standing with God, but because we have been transformed by the love of God. And we can't help but share that love. So I encourage you, don't be anxious. Put your trust in Jesus. And as you do, he will free you to do the good works that demonstrate that you know and love him. And to, to use both, both of those uh, senses of justification, when he justifies us, our faith is justified. When he justifies us, when he declares us righteous, our faith is justified in the sense that it becomes proven. It is demonstrated. So start by putting your faith in the idea that Christ has justified you. That's where you need to start.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can put our hope in you and that we can have confidence that you have paid the price for our sins, that you have redeemed us, God, that there is, there is nothing uh, that your blood uh, cannot atone for. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for what, what we have in you and through you. And Lord, I pray that the knowledge of that, the, the faith that we put in that would ease any anxiety we, we have. Uh, but we pray that it would also be transformative in our lives, God. We pray that it would help us, uh, that it would empower us to love you and to love the people that you've made, God, the people that you love. And I pray that, Lord, as, as our faith deepens, God, that it would express itself through love. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would have a, an ability to serve others uh, selflessly that is, is unique to followers of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, um, that your word is not in conflict here. Uh, it can be hard to understand. And uh, Paul and James are, are emphasizing different, different things, but we see that there is, there is a coherence um, to, to uh, how this all works, Lord. And we pray that if there's still any confusion about that for any of us, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to be able to see um, how, how there is a coherence, God, um, that as you justify us, as you put us in right relationship with you, uh, our faith is proven. It is, it is justified in the way that we, we behave. And we know, Lord, that when we fall short, that there is grace for us, and we, we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.